who are you, and is it possible to upgrade your identity as an adult? Behind the podcast of episode EF8, I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to episode EF27 of the Evolve Faster podcast. Quick spoiler alert, this is a behind the podcast episode looking back at episode EF8 of the Evolve Faster podcast, which was season one, episode six, titled Without a Compass, All Who Sail the Seas of Identity Are Not Lost. The driving question of this episode and this behind the podcast for you to think through is, who am I? I'm going to briefly read the plot introduction that was on the website just to remind you of what the episode was. You're the sailor of the ship called you, and yet most people let their boats go into great disrepair and neglect, feeling moored in the same spot for years with no clear understanding of the direction she needs to go. Lisa gets an opportunity to upgrade her identity boat with a chemical compass of sorts a mysterious drug that will supposedly alter her complete identity to better enable her to navigate through life's rough waters. Could a change in your identity actually turn your entire life around for the better? Or are we destined to live with constant susceptibility to being lost at sea in meaningless actions and emotions without any sort of compass to steer our ship? That's a reminder of what the episode is about. If you haven't listened and you'd want this to be a more interesting experience, I'd recommend you go give the episode a listen. I'll try not to give too many spoilers here, unless the question really just begs it and it needs to be discussed. I often feel it can be hard to be yourself. Actually, I can even go a few steps back and say, it's hard to understand who you are. Are you the same person you were 10 years ago? We take personal identity for granted, that we're a fixed person. But over long times, through traumas, do we change mentally or even physically? There are obvious natural changes, but every so often, something happens to us that bumps us from the pre-designed road a little, and the entire course changes ever so slightly. But it does change, and after a few more bumps, your identity needs some brushing up. So in a way, isn't it kind of false to talk about us having a singular identity. Each one of us builds an enormous set of identities over a lifetime. I can look back on my life and reflect on Scott 1.0 or Scott 2.0 or Scott 3.0 and so on for the large character shifts in my life. Perhaps the high school Scott to the college Scott was a full release instead of just a dot release. And let's face it, some of us downgrade either on purpose or through circumstance. So these changes can be tiring and almost subconsciously, we get confused and wonder who or what am I supposed to be? Was I better back when I was 15 years old or will I be better two years from now? This might be highlighting the bigger issue of being unable or unwilling to be happy in the present version of you. But that's not exactly what I'm referring to here. I'm pointing to the root cause of this kind of identity wandering which causes these kind of thoughts. So there's that famous phrase that says, I'll leave tomorrow's problems for tomorrow's me. In a way, you have to, as you can't deal with issues that haven't happened yet. There's a different quote I like even more that comes from Soren Kierkegaard. Be that self, which one truly is. This simple sentence strikes the bullseye as it tells us we need to act now. We should find and accept our current best instead of searching for it in the past or the future. Easier said than done, right? So this is the question that episode EF8 tried to tackle. Who are you? 
This was an interesting episode to write because it forced us to ask this of ourselves. Have you ever purposely dug up things from your past to try and stir a reaction in yourself? I hadn't really done this, at least not consciously or on purpose, before this episode. But at a certain point, after finishing this one, I actually made it a task on my list. It was a light life experiment on myself to see what would happen. Would the fact that I'm aware help me cope with it? So like a chemical reaction, if you throw fuel on fire, you're going to get more fire. No surprise in that. But still, you can get burned. When you're not actually the struggling or desperate artist, it would seem you might have to fabricate it a little. So nothing wrong with that. Many great works were made by channeling the turmoil of others. You have to use the problems you have or copycat other people's problems to create a character. So there was some digging to try and channel Lisa's anger issues. But while doing this, I started questioning if maybe I was unearthing some of my own demons. Was this like a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, minus the ayahuasca and vomiting? And although it was just a minor experiment, I came to realize that it might have consequences I, I can't undo if I dig some things up. So doing episodes like this one, especially in this manner, is hard, but rewarding mental work. So what changed about my identity during the most turbulent times of my life? Did I go from Scott 3.0 to Scott 4.0? Or did I fall back to an older version of myself that was then bogging down my mental systems? Well, let's see if the rest of the questions shed any light on this. And then I'll come back to this versioning problem that I'd posed for myself. So here's a set of questions we're going to try to get through. Why this question? Who are you? Are Isaac and Lisa modeled after anyone? Lisa changes an awful lot between this and the next episode. Is this level of transformation really possible? Why did you decide to have CBT be part of the drug test? Is the mule a reference to Asimov's foundation? And in EF12, a later episode, you say she was in a placebo group. So the drug did work, but she didn't take it. So why this question, who are you? This is probably the most subtle big question in season one. Most of us will give a simple answer by either giving our name or a few characteristics which we feel describe us. Perhaps most in America would frame this with a career focus like, I'm Scott, I'm currently a creative philosophical writer, podcaster, part-time musician, real estate entrepreneur, and a lucky dad to an awesome daughter. Or maybe more of a cultural, locational description like, I'm Scott, I'm from Chicago, but consider myself a citizen of the world because I've lived, worked, played, and traveled to over 75 countries. Or maybe a personality trait like, I'm Scott, and I'm an extroverted introvert, meaning people can't actually tell that I can't stand small talk, and it exhausts me, and I'd rather be home playing guitar or hanging out with my daughter. <laughs> but after you describe yourself as just, say, introverted or extroverted, do you think the tag stays permanently for your whole life? Or is who we are prone to changes? So imagine it as a static snowball that's indefinitely standing on the top of a mountain. It doesn't grow, it only gets buried under falling snow. But a dynamic snowball that starts rolling down the mountain gathers snow and gets bigger. Our mindset and who we are can be pictured like that, either a static or dynamic snowball. If you're familiar with growth mindset, this is similar. 
if you see yourself as static, like I'm smart or I'm dumb, then you're gonna be resistant to change that. So there's a lot of information about neuroplasticity recently, telling us how the adult brain can improve instead of being a static organ that has reached its full potential. As it turns out, neuroplasticity isn't just a golden ticket to a better you, as it can have negative impacts as well. So according to research, trying too hard to rewire your brain can have both positive and negative results on your mental and physical abilities. You can guess that it goes back to your mindset and how you approach it. But the point is, who you are is more than changeable. To go back to the snowball that is you, you can change it if you're not static. So I was always kind of plagued by the idea that we don't bother to think about what defines us and makes up our identity, but we should. Because by not doing so, it starts you on a path to being defined by other influences like society, family, friend, etc. That's fine, nothing wrong with that, as long as we're the one who's in control. But it's damn hard since everything is highly emotionally driven, even when you think you know what your identity is doing. Fear, anxiety, angst, parental society disappointment, desire for respect, and so on. Just remember how many times you told yourself you won't make the same mistake. And yet when the moment came, you did it all over again, even though you mustered all the power you could to not do it. Let's say with a job, your boss threatens that he'll fire you if you don't do that and that. You comply, but in the moment of anger, you say to yourself, next time I'll stand up. And the moment arrives and your pattern repeats instead. This is just a simple example that, you know, we can identify anger, fear, stress, disappointment, and many other emotions. It's just one big fruit salad made out of emotions that directly influences who we are and will be. But don't you think we can take our identity into our own mental hands? These thoughts led me to ask this question and ended up being portrayed in the character Lisa in episode EF8, the protagonist of this episode. She takes on the task of self-remolding her identity and does so in the episode, though she comes at it indirectly and gets lucky in the end. So it was sort of a natural flow since the question directly leads to the bigger topic of rewriting your story, almost like making a systematic practice of creating our identity. We are like plants that need light to grow, but there's a strong chance that most of us were planted in a spot that doesn't have a lot of light. So we need to push ourselves towards the light to grow. It might go against nature and possibly some predeterminations, but if we want to achieve Kierkegaard's self, which truly is, I think it's necessary. But for most of us, it goes against what we think is possible for ourselves, which can be a self-defeating loop. Are Lisa and Isaac modeled after anyone? It's funny to talk about character creation when talking about identity, because the initial identity we gave to Lisa was completely different than the final product. Actually, here I realized that creating fictional characters and trying to make them the best selves they can be probably helped me with myself and same with Antonio. You start to see patterns you can directly connect to yourself. It goes without saying that at the beginning, Lisa wasn't what she was truly meant to be. The first version we created was depressed, the same as the final version, but she lacked character. It was an empty, one-sided shell without substance, and for the story's purpose, she was boring and not good enough. It sounds like I'm juggling the life of an actual person, but... So after doing a couple changes, Lisa was bestowed with a sharp, cynical attitude. 
I've done this in some of my past lives. Maybe Scott version 2.56 or something was was like this. And I have at least one friend who has this type of funny, cynical shell as his entire persona. As I'm thinking about it, I probably drew from these wells and likely Antonio did as well from his own cast of characters in his life. So anyway, this became Lisa's shell to shield against anything that she didn't want to let in. One that has to be broken as the story moves on. So same as in the previous mentioned boss example, she'd pull out the shield automatically whenever facing another person and her personal problems. Starting with her sister at the episode's beginning, and finally when she's confronting Isaac during the pre-session for the drug. So this was the moment when I realized Lisa had become what she truly is, a solid protagonist for the episode about identity. So as for Isaac, he was introduced quite late, and I think he's one of the last characters created for this episode. So he came in almost as a backup, like a wild card, lurking somewhere in the back of our minds. There wasn't much experimenting with him since the story was already done and we already knew who Isaac had to be. We needed a calculated, mentally stable person to counter Lisa. So the only choice with creating his character was will we make him a good calculated guy or a bad calculated guy? Naturally, this choice would lead to direct influence in the story, but there were some other logistics we had to watch out for. So in the end, Isaac was working for, call it an evil company. We decided to put a small twist and portray him as a genuinely good person who wants to help people. Making him bad was the kind of easy way to go, but making him good was a little bit of a bigger challenge and a little more fun. So to answer the question, I don't think Isaac was based on anyone at all. Lisa changes an awful lot between this and the next episode. Is this level of transformation really possible? So I was definitely bugged by the same question. A lot of times, not just with this episode, the first draft would sometimes have some not so realistic elements. And I do put the word realistic in air quotes because it was interesting to see what each of us thinks is realistic, you know, between Antonio and I specifically. So he would bring in a draft, say, of something we were working on, and I'd read the story part, and to me, it didn't make sense. Like, would a person, just because she lost her job, really make the drastic decision of taking a drug that could completely alter her identity? From my point of view, this is totally illogical and needed more context to be taken seriously, but from his point of view, it made total sense. He felt that she was depressed, nothing going her way, and so sure, in the world of fiction, she'd take it. This is where we have a good yin-yang, I think, creatively. So we have different perspectives on questions like this, which I think ends up in a balanced, more thought-through set of characters and plot. So even though I'm the decider, just like George Bush, I always definitely take his ideas under advisement before I just squash them. <laughs> kidding, kidding, buddy. Um, so we discuss and come up with a certain resolution. And in the case of Lisa, I insisted, so we decided to give her more context. We brainstormed, he went back and layered in some more, and then I put in some more icing with that scene with the intro, which I'll re reread here because it's one of my favorite parts of the episode. I think it nails the kind of fragile sarcasm shell that she's hiding a fragile eagle beneath that we were going for. So looking into the mirror, contemplating the rash decision she'd made, 
she attempted a laugh at the mess of the tears left behind. The mascara lines running down her face looked like black, dried-up riverbeds you might see in a National Geographic special about the fate of the Amazon rainforest. She could hear the voiceover in her head as the footage rolled from above. Global warming has left behind this decimated riverbed. The wildlife is all gone. In her imagination, it was Morgan Freeman's voiceover, and it was his silhouette you could see in the foreground of the shot in the helicopter. But her sarcasm, her usual armor, couldn't save her anymore, and she burst into further tears. The chemical procedure starting the next morning was finally too impending to avoid. She put her hands on the side of the sink and, for once, allowed the flood of tears to happen. Drops of black riverbed cascaded onto the porcelain sink below, creating another environmental catastrophe. She couldn't remember ever having cried so hard or so long. Her smartphone began to ring as the sobbing was finally subsiding. Glancing at it, she knew she had to answer or else risk a concerned drop-in that she did not want to deal with right now. The nearest bath towel took the blunt of the makeup mess as she quickly wiped it across her face. She averted her gaze from the mirror to avoid another breakdown and took a deep breath. The armor was rusty from all the tears, but hiding the pain was one of Lisa's well-mastered skills. So, as explained earlier in the beginning, she was just this mundane person who I felt needed a lot more character to put her in this shaky identity that someone would want to try and upgrade or decimate. She had to have and discover a part of her identity that makes everything suck for her. So in a way, there had to be a deeper psychological reason to me. And it was found in her hot temper and cynical character, which caused relationship and work failures. And the best part that I think gets overlooked is how she resolves it. So don't you think we often fall into this trap of thinking we have to completely remove something about ourselves when we think it's bad in order to get better? So she doesn't ditch her quirky cynicism in the end to get better. She keeps it and learns to accept it for what it is. And she kind of reworks it into something that becomes a positive in her personality. She accepts her whole identity package and gets it under control. She goes full Kierkegaard and becomes what she truly is in a way that she always was. <laughs> Why did you decide to have CBT be part of the drug test? So as for CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, it served as a great explanation for what happened to Lisa. Spoiler coming, I always wanted the drug to be a fluke. So I threw out several ideas to Antonio about what would happen to her instead. And I'd had CBT down as one of the proofs um, from of the episode from the very beginning. So I just realized that this was actually the first instance of an episode embodying one of the proofs or principles of the episode. This happened a couple more times towards the end of the season once I purposely made it a goal, but I think I didn't realize it, but this was the first time when instead of explicitly talking about CBT, or, you know, some other philosophical or psychological or scientific thing, I instead made it just happen to the character. I guess this was the, the birth of that embodiment that I'm, I'm trying to do more of going forward and that end up purposely happening in episodes like EF-13. It's much better for the episode and it's just harder to do. It just takes a lot more time and I didn't even realize it was something I needed or wanted to do as we were doing these rewrites for the sixth, seventh time. 
So there were other makes, ways to make a final big twist that would have been fun, but we, I, I, you know, ultimately we wanted to make something that could carry over into the next episode, which we did. We kind of just kind of an implication of what happened here, but you don't, we don't really know. Like there's a couple hints at it in this episode, but really not until the next episode where she's speaking with Elliot does it get explained and she kind of comes to the realization herself of what happened to her. She truly does go full circle and I, I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm proud of her <laughs> just as I'm proud of us. Um, the episode worked out, was the easiest, so to speak, of the, th- of the three of this, of this little trilogy of linked episodes, seven, eight, and nine. Uh, it did require a lot of rework, however, once I finally figured out what the connections were between seven, eight, and nine. And I went over these episodes over and over again to try to figure out how to make those changes. And it, it took a long time. And then once it was finally decided how seven and nine were going to work, then we had to go back and change, change this one. Is the mule a reference to Asimov's foundation? Well, from the very beginning of the podcast, I wanted to toy with Easter eggs being both subtly and not so subtly buried in the episodes. I knew I always felt good when discovering references in fiction or even pop culture shows like The Simpsons or South Park or Family Guy that bury lots of Easter eggs. So I wanted to play with them in this work as well. Antonio gave the drug name the mule, and this was actually the first formal Easter egg. We'd had a couple that were in there by name, some simple things. And so we'd play with them other episodes, but this was the first good one. So he, he brought it up and I thought it was a great idea. And then toying with the quirkiness of the name became sort of an ongoing gag throughout the whole season where whenever a character would comment on how stupid the name was, you can imagine it as the as a street drug name, but it's a funny idea to think of it, you know, going into a sterile drugstore and going to the counter and asking the pharmacist that you'd like a pack of mule. Uh, one thing to call a street drug the mule, but for a a sterile pharmaceutical drug, it was it was kind of funny. I've always loved Asimov, and Antony was reading Foundation at the time, so it was a good example of how you can pluck something from the current moment of your life and implement it creatively somewhere else. All you need is to be in the moment and see what puzzle pieces you have available to you in your life, and then you can connect them. In this specific situation, it was a name and. The goal was to play homage to a writer we, we both both really like. It's not an overly deep egg for anyone who's a fan of Asimov, but I'm guessing most of you already connect the dots. But there's also one more than one Asimov reference in this episode. Those six sideburns of his are worthy of multiple episodes. In episode EF11, you say that she was in a placebo group. So the drug did work, but she didn't take it. So originally I planned for everything to be settled in these three episodes to wrap up all the loose ends. But then I thought to myself, why not leave something for later? Why not let it spill just a little bit into one of the future episodes? So this was one of the rare cases where that idea came to both of us. I wanted to carry something over about Edward from EF7 and Antonio had the idea to carry over something about Lisa. So it was just another interesting challenge and I wanted to take on to see if we could make it happen. For that to happen, I had to decide which story part would be the most fitting for that little experiment. Since the government funding the drug was under this veil of mystery, it was the perfect choice for letting the mystery linger a bit longer through the season. We had tons of connections already, but not clarifications about the whole deal, so it was a great element to leave for later. I always wanted to 
reward in a way people who really like the podcast and are following episodes in detail to prepare the board so they can connect story pieces and get a better experience when than if you listen to just a single episode alone. This was a risk, of course, because if we overdid it, then the opposite effect might happen where nobody knows what's going on and the entire season was just a big bag of loose ends. So we did our best to balance it out. And in the end, I'm, I'm proud of it. I think it, think it turned out great. Maybe these would be no big deal for, say, a seasoned writer of a TV show who's used to doing this thing every day and has a staff of editors and, and readers to review it. But this was totally new to us. So making the episodes both totally independent, but also cooler if you listen to the big picture of all, all of them was a big accomplishment. Each episode, even the three that are directly tied together, can be listened to separately and still end up with a compelling story. But if you listen to all of them, you get a more rewarding experience and a bigger picture of the entire season. It wasn't easy, but I did. I think we did it successfully. And EF9, which I'll answer questions for in an upcoming BTP episode, turned out really well, and it's one of my favorite endings of the season. As far as what did Lisa exactly do, well, I'd like to leave that for you to decide. So although there are small spoilers in behind the podcast, it's better to leave this one unclear and let you come up with your own conclusion. This one's pretty minor, actually, since we reveal most of what happened to her in later episodes. But if you give that one a listen, meaning episode EF9, the next one, it will probably solve most of the open-ended questions you have. So that's all I have time for. Uh, I think that covers most of the important themes from the questions. Thanks for submitting. You can always submit questions at evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss. I, did I re reveal enough to about the original question posed and answering them? Well, without realizing it, as I was developing Lisa's character, I slowly realized the podcast and my recent years of writing has kind of been like my own personal CBT, sort of retelling my own stories. So like all of us, I'd often get annoyed and angry or sometimes not even realizing why, and then it would happen. Just like that, I'd stop being angry or sad without knowing why. And that would frustrate me even more because I guess nobody likes it when they don't know why something happens, being a negative or positive thing. You know you'll go swimming in those dark waters again at some point, and although you'll come out alive, the idea of the constant cycle can be kind of terrifying. And the only worse thing is the thought that you can't absolutely do anything about it. But it was at this point, when I was running Lisa through the ringer, that it came to me that, hey, I feel good when I'm doing this. Like, I was torturing this poor fictional character, but it felt good. <laughs> and it almost, you know, rewriting some of my own problems and errors. I think it's often hard for us to believe that we can actually change something about ourselves, especially our identity. And it becomes almost a fairy tale that you feel you're too old to listen. But like every good fairy tale, it starts with a simple introduction, or in our cases, big question. If there was one thing you could change about your identity, what would that be? And then the second question should be, why can't you? For me, as it may be for you, I couldn't find the answer, but at least I knew the culprit. It was obviously myself. So as I've said previously, you don't really know what you believe until you try to write it down. And I think it becomes sort of a CBT when you're trying to help your characters through things that you yourself have suffered multiple times, 
maybe even chronically, your whole life. The only thing I did right was that I didn't give up and I kept doing something, kept doing anything really to push it forward. So this was episode six and by then most of season one was at least in a second draft. It took a long time for me to realize this with creating Lisa. Personal way, she became my one of my favorite characters, one of whom I could whom I could relate to. The key to finding yourself and being what we truly are is to just keep on trucking, to keep falling down. So it does suck, and we often wonder for how long we need to do this, but it pays off in the end. So I'll wrap it up here. If you like the podcast and you want to help ensure that season two becomes a reality, please review it, share it, spread the word any way you can. And thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.